Hi, welcome back to Spotlight Anatomy. Today, we will be having a closer look at the shoulder joint. Feel free to follow along using an anatomy app or follow the link in the description for our illustrated notes. And there's quizzes there too. By the end of this episode, you should be able to name and identify the structures involved in the glenohumeral joint. Recall the origins, insertions and innovations of shoulder joint muscles. Understand movements that occur at the joint, as well as the muscles involved. Recall factors that stabilise the joint. Describe relevant vasculature and innovations surrounding the joint, and recall their pathology. Before diving into the details, let's take a quick look at the key features of the joint. The shoulder joint, also known as the glenohumeral joint, is a type of synovial joint. This means that the head of the humerus is covered in a hyaline cartilage layer, enabling movement between the points of articulation, as well as providing protection from wear and tear during these movements. It's further classed as a ball and socket joint, because as you can see the head of the humerus acts like a ball sitting within the glenoid fossa of the scapula, the socket. This structure makes it the most mobile joint in the body, but also comes with the cost of being relatively unstable. So if the shoulder joint is so inherently unstable, can you think of a reason why we are still able to utilise it in such a versatile fashion? There are some important structures that aid in its stability, including the glenoid labrum, the joint capsule, ligaments and muscles. We'll be taking a look at some of these throughout the episode. The glenoid labrum is a narrow, fibrocartilaginous rim that sits on the edge of the glenoid fossa. It deepens the socket of the fossa, creating a greater surface area of contact with the humeral head. This makes the joint more stable and reduces the risk of shoulder dislocations. Also aiding in stability is the joint capsule, or the articular capsule as it's sometimes known. This is a fibrous sheath that stretches from the rim of the glenoid fossa to the anatomical neck of the humerus. An important site as it is the region of the epiphyseal growth plate. It's loose and lax to allow for the movements which the shoulder is capable of and is reinforced by the rotator cuff muscles, except at the inferior aspect which is made weaker by their absence. Let's move on to taking a closer look at the shoulder joint, starting with the ligaments. A ligament is a type of connective tissue that connects bones to each other. It acts almost like a rope and aids in the stability of a joint. There are five ligaments involved in the shoulder joint, the names of which help us to understand which bones they are involved in joining and stabilising. First up are the glenohumeral ligaments, which as the name suggests link the glenoid to the humerus. They consist of the superior, middle and inferior ligaments, and are found at the anterior aspect of the shoulder joint. Given that they are found anteriorly 
and joined the glenoid and the humerus, what do you think the function of this particular set of ligaments is? The main role of these ligaments is to prevent an anterior dislocation of the humerus, which is one of the most common shoulder injuries. Next, we have the coracoclavicular and coracohumeral ligaments. Again, their names highlight the sites at which they attach. The coracoclavicular is made up of the conoid and trapezoid ligaments. It runs between the lateral clavicle and the coracoid process of the scapula. While the coracohumeral ligament links the coracoid process to the greater tubercle of the humerus. There is also the coracoacromial ligament, which, you guessed it, runs between the coracoid process and the acromion of the scapula to form the coracoacromial arch. This arch creates a passage for the tendon of supraspinatus, a part of the rotator cuff muscles. The coracoacromial ligament is an essential component in resisting superior dislocation of the humeral head. Can you think of a mechanism of injury that could cause a superior dislocation? They are quite rare. Superior dislocations can be caused, sometimes, by a fouche, a fall onto outstretched hands, though it's quite a rare consequence. Anterior dislocations are much more common, occurring when there is abduction and external rotation of the arm, for example in sporting injuries, such as rugby tackles. The final ligament of the shoulder joint is a transverse humeral ligament. This is an odd little ligament and connects part of the same bone to each other. In this case, the greater and lesser tubercles of the humerus. It enables passage of the tendon of long head of biceps brachii. Before we move on, now is the perfect opportunity to take a look at a structure called the subacromial space. This is a small space in the shoulder joint found between the coracoacromial arch and the head of the humerus. There are four structures within this space. The subacromian bursi, the supraspinatus tendon, the joint capsule, and the long head of biceps. Impingement syndrome is an important pathology to think about with regards to the shoulder joint, as the narrowness of the subacromial joint puts its contents at risk of impingement during abduction of the arm a movement we'll learn about later. Now, it's time to look at the bursi of the shoulder joint. So a bursa is a fluid-filled sac that sits between tendons and bone and provides a cushion for the tendon to smoothly glide across during movement of the respective joint. In the shoulder, there are two important bursi to think about, the subacromial bursi and the subscapular bursi. The subacromial bursa sits under the acromion and acts to separate the supraspinatus tendon from the coracoacromial ligament. The subscapular bursa, on the other hand, sits between the tendon of subscapularis and the neck of the scapula.
It functions to protect the tendon as it passes under the roof of the coracoid process and over the neck of the scapula. We've covered a lot so far, so feel free to pause or take a break. If you're ready, we'll now take a look at the numerous neurovascular structures of the shoulder joint, starting with the arteries. Branches of the right subclavian artery, which arises from the brachiocephalic trunk, supply the right shoulder joint. Similarly, the branches of the left subclavian supply the left shoulder joint. However, this arises directly from the aorta. Once both subclavian arteries have crossed the lateral border of the first rib, they are considered to be the axillary artery, which then course behind the pectoralis minor muscle. They then give off the anterior and posterior circumflex humeral branches, which supply the proximal part of the humerus. The axillary artery also gives off a subscapular branch before becoming the brachial artery at the inferior border of teres major. The nerve supply is closely related to the arterial supply of the shoulder joint. The cords of the brachial plexus lie in close proximity to the axillary artery and so are named in relation to it. Innovation to the shoulder joint includes the axillary, subscapular and lateral pectoral nerves with the C5 dermatome overlying the shoulder itself. We are now going to take a look at the stability and movements of the shoulder joint in closer detail. There are two broad types of stabilizers that act to keep the shoulder joint protected and in place. These are static and dynamic stabilizers. We've already met some of the static stabilizers of the joint. Can you remember what they are? Some of the static factors that stabilize the joint include the glenoid labrum, which deepens the glenoid fossa, the joint capsule, the glenohumeral ligaments, and the extracapsular ligaments such as the coracoacromial arch. Another static stabilizer is negative intraarticular pressure. This means that the pressure within the joint at the point of articulation is negative relative to the pressure around it. This essentially adds to the stability by keeping the humeral head in place with a suction force. The main dynamic stabilizers are the rotator cuff muscles and the extrinsic muscles of the shoulder joint, both of which are covered in greater detail in the Shoulder Muscles podcast. The long head of biceps and the rotator interval are also included in this group. Finally, it's essential to know about the movements that the shoulder joint is capable of, as this is the biggest function of the joint as a whole. When thinking of movements, it's helpful to consider them in relation to the anatomical position. There are three pairs of movements that the shoulder joint is capable of. What do you think they are? The movements are abduction and adduction, 
flexion and extension, and internal and external rotation. So let's take a look at these. First is abduction and adduction. These movements are opposites of each other, with abduction meaning to move away from the midline in a lateral direction, and adduction meaning to move towards the midline in a medial direction. Abduction has three stages at the shoulder joint. From 0 to 15 degrees from the anatomical position is carried out by supraspinatus muscle. Then up to 90 degrees is carried out by deltoid. Above 90 degrees, the superior fibres of trapezius and the serratus anterior muscles are involved. Adduction is a little simpler with pectoralis major, teres minor and latissimus dorsi being the muscles involved for all of adduction. The next pair of movements is flexion and extension. At the shoulder joint, flexion moves the arm anteriorly and is done by the anterior fibres of deltoid. The clavicular head of pectoralis major, coracobrachialis and biceps brachii. Extension moves the arm posteriorly and this is done by the posterior fibres of deltoid, latissimus dorsi and teres major. The final pair of movements is internal and external rotation. Internal rotation, also known as medial rotation, turns the shoulder inwards towards the midline. This is facilitated by subscapularis, teres major, latissimus dorsi and the sternal head of pectoralis major. The opposite movement, external or lateral rotation, moves the shoulder out and away from the midline and this is done by infraspinatus and teres minor. Thank you for listening and that's everything for today. Now, why not try the shoulder joint test yourself by following the link in our description. Have a look at the show notes if there's something you didn't catch or for a more clinical view, check out our weekly pathology podcast. We'll see you next week for our next episode on the axilla and the brachial plexus.